Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress, writer, show creator, and former financial analyst, Britt Marling. Britt Marling has created one of the most original, mind-bending, and creative shows on television with Netflix's The OA, an exploration of near-death experiences, interdimensional travel, modern dance, and much, much more. But the thing that sticks with you, and the thing that underlies all of the sci-fi excitement, is a very human yearning for connection and community. Between the OA and her films Another Earth and Sound of My Voice, Britt's talent for tapping into her childhood imagination to create unique stories is undeniable. In the case of life almost imitating art, Britt nearly took a radically different career path. The parent-pleasing Georgetown valedictorian graduated with a degree in economics that landed her at banking behemoth Goldman Sachs. She spent a year crunching numbers and cans of Red Bull before she realized that she was terribly depressed. As she tells it, I couldn't understand why all of these bright, excited young people found themselves here. No one was asking us to reinvent anything. It was just, here's the model, plug in the numbers. I had a moment there where I said, I'm going to die. Is this what I want to do day to day? Well, luckily, Brett got a taste of a more fulfilling and creative career when her two college friends, both aspiring filmmakers, came to New York City with an invitation to make a short film for a 48-hour film festival. The thrill of the experience had a profound impact on Brett. She thought, either I can have this career with safe, predictable outcomes, or I can work my butt off doing something I love. Yes, it's dangerous, and yes, I may be broke all the time, but I'll be happy. Well, needless to say, Goldman Sachs was left in the dust. Britt joins off camera to talk about how wading through the acting swamp led her to screenwriting, why collaboration is the key to her success, and why death needs a redesign. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Britt. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy you're here because mm. I've been deep in the OA. My kids are, like, worried about me. I, it's, it's, it's an engrossing show, to say the least. And it's also a feat because I'm not someone traditionally who gravitates towards sci-fi. I, I'm yeah. often grounded in... Reality. Reality. Yeah. And, and yet I'm fully drawn into this, and that's a testament to your storytelling well, ability. So I actually understand that because I'm not drawn to science fiction either. Is that true? So I know what you mean. I look that. at your history of... <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain that, like... It isn't what I seek out as a story consumer. So it's interesting that I'm so interested in making it. But I think it's because I remember reading an Ursula Le Guin quote about something where she was saying, like, sometimes if you want to be critical of the world you're living in and also be able to propose alternative, alternative ideas for a different one, science fiction or speculative fiction ends up being the zone you operate in. But it, that like wasn't the fiction I was drawn to as a kid, you know? Right. Well, that makes sense because in order to draw connections about humanity and create hypotheses and stuff, you yeah. have to be able to step back from and take away the filters that we all sort of live by. But I think when you sort of wipe that out or have the ability to somehow look at humanity the way a scientist looks at lab rats, yeah. then you can draw different conclusions. I was thinking of a recent episode in part two of the OA where you talk about redesigning death, mm. which is a radical idea yeah. and yet totally necessary. 
I think we do need to redesign death. But I think if you went out in the world and said, I want to redesign death, people might be worried. They might be worried and they might be but like... you can present it in a story. <laughs> then you get away with it. You get away with it. Isn't that weird? I'm so glad you brought up that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes that Zal and I wrote. And I think it's because it felt like this moment where you could sneak in a bunch of ideas about like, wait, why do we go about dying the way we do in our culture. Why? Right. I was at a funeral recently and I found it um, so distancing. It almost felt like it was like a performance that was happening and I, I didn't feel I could actually connect with the person I was losing. And I just kept thinking to myself, there's gotta be some other way to go about death and conversations about death and preparing for death and not have it be this dark or gloomy thing, but have it be something that exists more that makes you feel how incredible life is as an opportunity, you know, by living with a conscious uh, awareness that it is limited. And that's what right. makes it so precious, you know? Forget life hacks. Yeah. You want death hacks. I want death hacks. <laughs> that's your next show, death I, yeah, hacks. I just, or I want to at least ask the question and see as you're saying, if it, if it provokes a conversation, like I think so much of what we do is our underlying motivation is a fear of death. I think that's actually one of the lines in the yes, scene. Yes, it is. She's like, that's right. We mate, we create, procreate. You know, so it makes me just think, like, well, what would it, what would our culture be like if we could sit with that a little better? What if we felt a little more comfortable with? It's so true. How when you get down to it, how much. We talk around the subject while being completely motivated by the subject. Yeah, and and then in, I think in the current pursuit of like technology, so much of it is driven towards the idea of a kind of um, the holy grail of immortality. You know, could we upload our consciousness to some kind of cube? You know, could we? you know, freeze the body and then plug it back in? Is there a way for a human being to exist on a mainframe? And or even documenting our life, the, the proliferation of, of how many photographs everyone takes a day. <laughs> and what is that a desire to be immortal or, or a desire to say, I'm here and I'm alive? And, and I'm holding it all. It yeah. isn't just like slipping through my fingers. It's not a passing thing. It's but it's not meaning. No. It's, it's <laughs> like trying to hold on to it. Yeah. And there's, I think that there's something funny about that and maybe um it's hilarious death is hilarious <laughs> <laughs> we laugh at death here on this show <laughs> we laugh in the face it's of not it. happening to us yeah <laughs> it's happening to us we literally live our lives like there isn't some tragedy waiting for all of us at the end yeah or people some... are turning off in droves yes right now. Right now. Like, i don't want to think about that yes where are you going sam where are you taking us <laughs> you took us there i did i did yeah you took me there this morning at like five in the morning so you... was that really disquieting were you like Ooh. totally <laughs> totally your whole show is disquieting and i'll tell you the weird part of it is that it's also as disturbing and disquieting as it is it's also incredibly um inspiring because I think what the OA is, is a, it's the most pure version of childhood imagination. What I mean by that is, I think when you're a kid, the biggest questions about life cross our minds then because mm -hmm. it's all a mystery. Mm -hmm. And it's before the adults have unraveled our mystery and says, and they say, oh, time is this, yeah. or birds fly because, you know, we learn all the scientific reasons behind it. And slowly the mysteries 
uh, go away. And I think that when I watch your show, I feel like somehow the basis of, of the way you write it seems to be that you have access to those original questions mm. and, and looking for alternate answers to the logical ones. There's something in childhood that happens where all the explanations come in and the world gets reduced to like what you can see and hold. You know, this is a cup right. and it sets on this and if I dropped it here, it's gravity and it's the floor. And but a kid goes, maybe the fifth time I drop it, it won't. It won't drop. Yeah. And how do you know that the kid isn't right? I mean, I guess this is the thing about science. I love science as a discipline. But sometimes there's a version of, of science that can compress the wonder out of everything. It's the version where we really have the hubris of thinking that we know. We definitely don't know. I mean, there was a group of scientists once who, like, crossed their arms and sat there and said, well, the, you know, the Earth is the center of the universe because right. we humans are the center and everything is revolving around us. And that, there was a moment in time that that was the science, you know. So I feel like science, is, it's constantly disproving itself by design, but we have, seem to have a hard time existing in that space. Like that we, we, we need facts. We need facts. And, right. and we can't seem to be like, oh, we, these are just our current best guesses as to how reality operates, but all they are is guesses, the same way a poem is a guess or a drawing is a guess or a song is a guess. I think what's been amazing about telling the story is that we are free to let our imaginations run wild and let the narrative really drive the structure of the show. So it's interesting to see how that feels to people because it's, it's coming at them through their television, which traditionally has been an apparatus that is very pasteurized right. storytelling. Right. Like, it's such an interesting space to be in as a storyteller. It reminds me of childhood. It reminds me of that wild, unfettered time in which you turned to your friend on the playground and you were like, let's imagine we're this, you right. know? And your friend just said, yes. Well, it's, I, what I wonder is, you know, how you justify in your mind thinking the craziest, weirdest things and then going, oh, this is actually work that I'm doing that is necessary because <laughs> anytime I've done something that turned out to be creative and great, it started out as feeling like this can't be good because it's not like, yeah. it couldn't be described as productive or having <laughs> results. Yes, I think and, I and it made me wonder what sort of the original impetus or the original image mm. for the OA was. And before I ask that, let me just, for people who haven't seen the show, yeah. let me make a failed attempt at explaining it. Mean, please do. Well, it's, uh, you play the central character who is sort of traveling between dimensions. And the best way I can describe it is, in life we make certain decisions, but every time we make a decision, we also make another decision not to do something mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's some traumatic moment that happens with a near-death experience where you get shocked into that other path. And the, the story seems to be about paths that people take and, yeah. and how their souls can jump consciousness. Yeah. And and it's also sort of a, it's a it's a thriller. It's a it's a detective mystery. <laughs> it's it's just the most wildly creative thing. That's a complete mystery. And um, and you're at the center of this thing, embodying different lives that all stem from this mm. one near death experience. Mm. It's the best I could say it. But that's but, so much better than I've ever said. <laughs> it. I'm, genuinely, we as had I'm such talking, a, I'm like I can't explain this. No, we had such a hard time. Uh, pitching this show initially because sure. it's very difficult to reduce it to like just a, a paragraph synopsis. But I think you went to the complete emotional heart of it, which is I think all of us have had moments in our lives where we've faced a decision 
and we are haunted by that choice. You know, what if we had gone down that other right. road? And yeah, I think that at, at its core, it, it's a meditation on identity. And So what was the original image for you that sort of coalesced it? What, what was sort of the, the impetus of it? I'll try to explain it this way. You know, Zal had been working as a director for hire and I had been working as an actress for hire in, most recently in something. And we came together and met and we started incubating the idea of doing a long format mind bender. And we were in Mexico together and I had this dream and in the dream, um, it was of a little girl and she gets this nosebleed and she keeps having these prophetic images and then she can't quite figure them out and finds herself in this accident, uh, bus accident with a bunch of other school children. And it turns out that the dream was sort of trying to prepare her for this event in order to be able to survive it. And I woke up from a nap and uh, told Zal this thing, and he was like, I think that's really something. Like, I think that there... So that, that was the, the... That was that fork the in the road. Yeah. yeah. And I think then we were talking a lot about this idea of, like, dream knowledge. That's another kind of intelligence we sort of discount, you know? But your your conscious mind is taking shit in all day long, and you can't possibly process it all. So in your sleep, your brain is doing this amazing work of, like, problem solving, using myth, using symbolism, using the, and so the idea of like telling a story in which the mining of dreams was important, the mining of the unconscious, like body knowledge, paying attention to these other spaces that feel like they've just fallen by the wayside. We don't seem to be that interested in them. We don't think they're real. Like right. we, but children know that they're real. Children trust their dreams and feel them very much. It, there's a, a big component of, of this, which is the near-death experience that is the fulcrum of seeing the other dimensions, I yeah. guess. And th- at least that's the original concept. And I was curious uh, if you did actual research on near-death experiences. Oh, so much. Oh, yeah. you did? And you know what's funny? Neither Zoll nor I have had a near-death experience, but we've now met uh, many people who have, and they all of them say that the that the work portrays so uncannily what it felt like to them, which I find so interesting because how? But I think this gets back to your thing about the imagination. I mean, I think if the muscle of our imagination is strong, we're all capable of feeling for and empathizing with one another. And so I think we did a lot of research, but then we also just imagined, like, what would that feel like to be outside of your body and thrust into a new realm and to come back with some sense of knowledge of something other? That's the thing that strikes me about most NDE survivors. Most of them that I have encountered say that they feel like they came into some greater understanding of what reality actually is. And when they come back, they have a sense of calm to them, like a, a kind of knowingness, like they're not sweating the small stuff right, anymore. Like, like the th- all the things that we preoccupy our mind with uh, that that pushes us through our days or stresses us, those things oh, fall right. away. And I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah. Now, I met one woman who said to me, and this phrase really stuck with me. She said she was losing consciousness in the ER. She felt her heart, She felt herself dying. And as she was leaving her body, she says, everything, everything I was concerned with in my life fell away. And the only thought I had was, 
did I tell the people I love enough how much I love them? And I, still, when I think about the way she said that, the way she looked at me and said that, I thought, ah, is it really that simple? Like we are just here to try to like love the people around us wholeheartedly and do that in an unbridled way as best we can, and then we're gone. And like, it's that simple. You know, I, I always want it to be so much more complicated than that, but you know, from her perspective, it was just that. And I thought that that seemed very, um, that seemed very, it seemed very simple, but not easy. And, right. and so it stuck with me. It's hard to do in day-to-day life. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Life is simple, but not easy. Yes. What? <laughs> that's true, though. Yeah, that's what it feels like. But it's hard now when you wake up and you have 150 emails in your inbox and you're like, oh, okay, I haven't done this. Oh, I haven't done I always think of this thing where we've created, we, we just have all worked together to create problems for each other. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like bureaucracy, it, the classic themes of why aren't we helping each other have easier lives rather than saying, well, you know, you have to fill out these four forms before you can talk to that person. You have to leave them. The, the four forms thing is the worst. I, I have now, I have four parking tickets now <laughs> for not putting my registration sticker onto the car, though I did pay for it and I have, ha- I have it and it's even in my wallet, but it hasn't, it just didn't, I keep forgetting to take the sticker out of my wallet, <laughs> put it on the back of the car. I don't think we were designed to keep track of these kinds of things, you know? Or at least I don't know how. I wonder if when you're leaving your body, you'll be like, God, that registration sticker. Fuck. It ruined, ruined like, a good three months of my life of stupid stress. Hundreds of dollars in tickets. And I just, all I needed to do was put the blue sticker (laughs) on the back of the car. Well, let me ask you this. When you were a kid, did you have big questions about what happens after we die? Or did your parents present a scenario of, this is what happens after we die. I mean, were you a kid that, that thought about that stuff? I think that I did, for better or for worse. But my parents weren't presenters. They were never like, this is the gig with death. This is the gig with sex. They kind of left things big question mark. Like, I never, I don't remember a talk in which anybody presented to me, like, the way things work. I think part of it is also, I, um, my, my cousin passed away when I was very young from a brain tumor. And I think that when you see that close up as a kid, you know, when you see like this incredible, vibrant, beautiful boy um, slowly go through chemotherapy and then one day is just gone, it does create in your mind like a very striking early awareness of like, oh, you know, he didn't do anything wrong and this happened. And yeah, how so you, did you process that? Like, I think I still think about it in the sense that, like, um, it's, the, it's the great capital M mystery, right? It's the, big, uh, it's the big yawning thing that we can't imagine fully. And I think as a kid, I maybe explained it away in different ways. I remember at his funeral there was a flock of birds that they released. And in my child magical thinking, I was like, oh, he has just, his spirit has dispersed into these birds and he's dispersing back into the natural world. And that made a lot of sense to me. But I guess as a kid, your magical thinking provides you with these answers or these ways of 
of coping with things. So yeah, I guess I was asking a lot of big questions yeah. early on and like very content to not answer them oddly. Like I think I got pretty early on that like we just don't know and that our ability to sit in the unknowingness is a good thing. Like I kind of respect the fact that my parents never, they never f gave us anything Nothing was hard and fast and true. Like, it was like, well, what do you think? Can you look back and go, oh yeah, I was different than the other kids in terms of like what you wanted to do with your time, your imagination? Because I read that you moved around quite a bit as a kid. Yeah. And that seemed to have a pretty big impact on you developing your own personality yeah. or, or realizing that personality is uh, ephemeral. Yes, totally. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I was curious about that because you almost went down a path that's totally different yeah. than where you are. So was there a pressure or an expectation on you to go down a certain path mm. um, that was different than the path in your brain that you couldn't trust yet? Or? Right, right, right. Oh, That's such a good question. Um, yeah, I think part of it is that early on moving around a lot, I remember talking to a casting director once and asking her, what do you think actors have in common? Like, what are actors as a kind of being? And she was like, I used to think it was divorced parents. I used to think that some of the great actors I would see came from divorced families. And then she was like, and then I realized that it isn't divorce per se. It was the shifting of location. Like, so if kids went from dad's house to mom's house and that was a separate journey, or if kids grew up in the army and they'd been in this continent and this continent, or if kids just moved around a lot, she was like, I, I pieced together eventually that it wasn't about divorce. It was about having a kind of itinerant or a, a childhood that involved a lot of moving around. And so if you stay in one place, you can create one personhood. You have one bedroom. It always looks the same. Like my poster of BJ Armstrong is here. <laughs> my My Little Pony sheets are there. That's true. I had both of those things. And this is who I am. And these are my friends at school, and they tell me who I am. Right, and those friends don't change, and the street those doesn't change. Don't change. And yeah. And you're, you're this thing. And you're not really allowed to be something else. Yeah, you're not. Because people keep telling you what you are, and then you reinforce that back to them. But if you keep moving, that just gets smashed up all the time. I mean, like, who you were in one place that worked well, you're now in another school, and you walk into the lunchroom, and nobody wants to be friends with that girl. You know, so then you're like, okay, gosh, well, how does this system work? You know, who are these people? What are they? So you start shifting your personality. You naturally shape shift. There's no geographic container to hold you. And ah. so you just like bust out of that thing. And I think a lot of actors really do have that in common. They get that personality is kind of just like what you're cherry picking that day, you know, for, for who you are. So I think I had that sense as a kid. Why did you move around so much? My parents were real estate developers. And so sometimes they would just begin a new project and they'd be like, okay, now we're moving to Tampa. Okay. Now we're moving to Miami. Now we're back here in Illinois and Winnetka. And then eventually we ended up in Orlando, which was a real cultural shift. So you can imagine it's oh, yeah. an unusual place to So you up. did have to be like, now my Chicago stuff isn't working no, in Orlando. No, they don't care who B.J. Armstrong is here. <laughs> they, they've never heard of... They've heard of Dennis Rodman, but they don't have, like, Dennis Rodman paraphernalia. This is like, there's no transactional. <laughs> so underneath all that, do you think that changing of identity was sort of a way to, um, I don't know, 
protect yourself. Totally, totally. You yeah. do. But also, I think you something I've realized later is definitely as a kid, I think it is a defense mechanism, you know, in a way to in a survival strategy. Right. Know? So yeah, maybe it began as that when I was a kid, but I think now I sort of just accept that like who I am at eighty will be very different from who I am now. I mean, there'll be core things that are the same. I'll probably still, you still know. Still have a B.J. Armstrong person. I'll still have a B.J. Armstrong person. <laughs> and I'll still be, like, you know, thrill-seeking, you know, love risk, love the adrenaline of that, but differently, you know. Like. Well, I think that what you're saying is that the more willing we are to allow ourselves to be that, maybe the more interesting our lives become and maybe moving around a lot gave you that opportunity to find out that you were still okay even if you weren't exact you know even if yeah. you did change and what I was curious about is did you sort of discover your love of acting and then get sort of pushed down another path or not encouraged in that area and I think that definitely from there were no artists in my family. So there wasn't like somebody to point to, to be like, that's a way you could live in the world being a creative person. So there wasn't really an example of that. Um, my mom had uh, worked in investment banking for a period before she met my dad. And I think for her, inside her generation, you know, she was one of the first women who was traveling around the world and often in boardrooms of men, you know, like working in finance. Um, I think that had been a kind of passport to her, for her, to a kind of freedom. So I think I kind of went down that road, and I, I studied economics in school, and I didn't. I like I liked economics in that, like I liked math. Um, I didn't understand that its real-world application banking was something very different. You know, <laughs> talk about naive. You know, to me, it was like I thought, oh. Uh, if I go into this, I'll just be, you know, in the library, like, doing <laughs> proofs. You know, this is not what's happening. So then when I went to go work at a bank, I was like, this And is not just a bank, but sort of the pinnacle bank <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of evil controlling and efficient wealth building. Yes, Goldman yeah. Sachs, right? Yeah, I went, I, and I think I found myself there, and I was like, oh, this is so different from um, how I imagined it when I was in college, you know, late at night in the library, like struggling with some proof and being like, ah, oh, okay, I'm going to get my brain to figure this out. It's a lot like screenwriting. You know, screenwriting is sort of like building a proof, trying to remove the extraneous va variables. So that part of it I loved. But then when I was at a bank and they're just like, here's your cubicle, here's your computer, your job is to like stay awake as many hours as you can and be accurate, you know, to the third decimal place. Go. And I was like, this feels funny, you know? I just, I couldn't understand what was happening in that space, and I couldn't understand why all these, you know, bright, excited young people were finding themselves here. Um, no one was asking you to reinvent anything. It was just like, here's the model, plug the numbers into the model. I think I just, speaking of mortality, I think I had a moment there where I was just like, I'm going to die, and is this what I want to do, like, day to day? Goldman Sachs was your NDE. Oh, my God. Yes. I think my, my I was just thinking to myself, I'm gonna, my therapist would love that. <laughs> like, yeah. It was your near-death right. experience. Yeah. Hey, folks. A little break in the conversation to tell you about this week's sponsor, Cavo. 
Are remote controls taking over your living room? Well, they are in my living room, and it's impossible to find the right remote that controls the right thing on the television. And forget trying to explain to someone else which remote to use when they want to watch TV, whether it's your kids or a guest. Well, that was the scene in my home until Cavo came along. You can simplify your entire watching experience with Control Center by Cavo, the one universal remote that does it all. Control Center is not another streamer. It manages all of your content and simplifies your home theater so you can control everything connected to your TV with one easy-to-use voice-controlled remote. Setup is easy. You plug in your streamer, sound system, cable, or satellite, even your game console, and Control Center will handle the rest. Then, you just say the name of whatever you want to watch, and Control Center will take you straight there. Say a movie, TV show, actor, even a specific episode of your favorite show, and Control Center will put up all your options, even YouTube. Then, you can just sit back, say what you want to watch, and then relax with Cavo's Control Center. Control Center was an immediate game changer in my home. Not only did it organize our viewing experience and get rid of all the remotes hanging around the couch, but it made the whole experience more fun and interactive and allowed us to search for more things that we never would have found on our own. It's an amazing experience, and if you're like me and you have kids and you're trying to find obscure old films and interesting television shows and documentaries, Cavo's a great way to find exactly what you're looking for. So shop now and you'll get 40% off Control Center with the promo code OFFCAMERA. And I've said this before, but when we introduce a new product on this show, I love hearing from listeners about their experience. And I've gotten some great letters about products from other sponsors on this show. And it's really nice to get that kind of feedback. Also, I just want to hear if your experience is the same as mine. So like I said, it's 40% off if you use the promo code OFFCAMERA. That's $59.95 which is 40% off the regular pricing of $99.95, which is a total bargain to simplify and upgrade your television experience. Control Center is available at Cavo.com, that's C-A-A-V-O.com, and Best Buy. There's a service plan required, and the first 45 days are free. See the website for details. Control Center by Cavo. One remote does it all. Now back to the show. Here's the thing, the person who made the OA and, and a person on the, on the fast track at Goldman Sachs, like, you, can't, you almost can't make two people further apart, yeah. you know what I mean? And so I'm fascinated by that. And I, I watched a commencement speech you gave at Georgetown. Oh, God. And you spoke about this. People who are at Goldman Sachs after a year, they're sort of like an inherent, stru- an inherent structure that most people stay on because... Yeah they've done the work to get there. Yeah, and yeah. you can see the rewards of that path. It's kind of like the game of life. And to be on that path, there must have been some internal rumblings that were pretty seismic yeah. for you to step off it because I'm sure there was expectations. There was, yeah. again, pleasing the parents. Yeah. Mom did this. Right. So tell me about like, tell me about being there and yeah. trying to recognize, like, recognize what was going on inside you enough to, to take that risk. Oh, my God, that's such a good... I remember a moment of, I had been there for a period. I was a, a, a new analyst, but I happened to be staffed on uh, two companies where they're having IPOs at the same time. So the volume of work was crazy. And I got sick, and um, there was really no time for that. you know. So you had to just be there anyway. 
And then I was also just sad, you know, like I would go home from work and sometimes just cry. And it wasn't just like a few tears. It was the kind of existential crying of like, it was heartbreak. I was heart, I was heartbroken that you brought this up earlier, the idea of like, when does a kid lose their imagination? When do they let go of that wild unbridled thing and become the broken in horse? That was the moment for me. I remember seeing a doctor, telling the doctor that I was having these like waves of sadness and he was just like, you're depressed, here's a prescription for Paxil. I remember filling the prescription and it was sitting on my nightstand and I would come home and be so sad and I would look at that bottle and I would think something is wrong here. If like I'm being told, like I'm doing something that's making me not feel good and I'm being told that the answer is to just like pop one of these pills. To make the thing To make the thing palatable. go palatable. To just go do the job. And I have yeah, so or, much or, empathy or for like that. fix the internal chemistries. To go do the job. Right, rather to, than to numb yourself, basically. Yes. To, yeah. And the doctor's answer, the system's answer was well, there are ways to medicate this so that you don't feel your body's gut reaction. You just go with what your mind is saying, which is like, if I do this job, I know exactly how much money I'll be making in two years, how much money I'll make in five years, probably how much I'll make in 10. Who I'll date, who I'll marry, who I'll where date, I'll live. 100%, what are the zip codes? What are the things that I'll have? You know, and the I private school I'll go to. 100%. And the I, college I'll bribe. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even mean any of that in a disparaging way. like. I really understand there's such great comfort that comes in being able to feel like you there's some safety and security in your future. And I don't judge it at all. But for me, in my body, I was like reaching a place of of dysfunction. and i i couldn't I couldn't bring myself to take the medication. And that was the moment that I was like, I was just like, I can't, I have to find a different thing. And I had been making short films in college and uh, two of my best friends from school, Mike Cahill, we made Another Earth together. Yeah. And Zalbot Monglage, we co-created the OA and made Sound of My Voice together back in the day. They were coming up to New York for a 48-hour film festival. And they were like, we're going to make this film. You get a topic, you get 48 hours to do it. Like, be involved. And I was thinking in my rational mind. While you're at Goldman. While I'm at Goldman. I was thinking in my rational mind, I'm on two projects that have IPOs. I should really spend all day Saturday and Sunday at the office. But then here are my friends, and they want to do this fun thing. And so I took the leap, and we did it. And we got a topic. We didn't sleep for 48 hours. We just made this film over the weekend. It was a total piece of shit. But I had so much fun. And I was like, okay, I can work my butt off doing something that I love. And it's dangerous, and I may never make any money, you know, and I may be broke all the time, but I'll be happy, I'll be delighted. Like, or I can do this thing that doesn't feel right in my body, where I know there are predictable, safe outcomes. And to me, suddenly, then it just, it actually wasn't a choice anymore. It just seems so obvious, like, I have to go this other way. Right. So it's like, suddenly you get rid of the safety net, and you're just like, I accept that my life is gonna be on a high wire. And I'm going to put one foot in front of the other every day, and it's going to be dangerous. And probably, and there's the fear of falling, but I'm going to just keep going on this thing with no net, believing that it, believing that it will make a more interesting life, like lived life, and that that will be better than 
the version where you're just, you're on the ground in the net. Did you call your mom when you made the decision? Yeah, she did not like it. <laughs> How did that call go? Because I called her and I also, my friend Mike Cahill is an amazing filmmaker, an amazing human being, an artist. He was going at the time to work on a documentary in Cuba and he was like, come with me. Take her cameras down there, take her laptops. And this is at the moment that technology has reached a place where for the first time you don't have to go to film school to be a filmmaker. Right, which because is amazing because, because you didn't say, okay, I'm gonna walk out the door of Golden Sachs and, and get on a plane and go to LA and start auditioning. You went straight to making a film first. Yeah. So you was, called your mom and you said, I called you mom say, and I I'm going like, to Cuba? I'm, I'm not gonna work at a, this bank and I'm going to move to Havana. And my mom was just like, <laughs> All our work. Yes, all our good work. Yeah. Our good girl who did all the good things, you know? Yeah, She's they, like, have you tried Paxil? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, what are... And I think also natural maternal fear. Yeah. She had never been there. She didn't know the space. In her mind, she was like, you will be arrested. You will be thrown in jail. I will have no way to get you out. Like, I'm, I'm losing my daughter. What was her most effective line to try to keep you? <laughs> she was, I, I mean, the jail thing was pretty intense. <laughs> she was, she was like, you know, they arrest dissidents there and the dissidents sometimes don't get out. And she thought she was losing you. It was, I mean, I, I felt it a little bit, but I also, I think I have, there is something in me that is like a, just a natural born risk taker. Like I, I always want to do the slightly dangerous thing, you know. We're that must have been weird for you sitting at Goldman and, and try to do that work, being a natural born risk taker. I mean, I think this is what we were talking about earlier, the idea that like, as a kid, you have a lot of energy and a lot of imagination and then edu the education process by and large can be a sort of slow indoctrination into becoming a person that helps maintain the status quo. Right. And I didn't realize that until I got out of college that that I asked myself I thought after I got out of college and entered the world, I thought to myself, why in my economics classes were all these young people are together, they're full of great ideas, they've got a professor there who has some wisdom, why aren't these groups sitting together like a think tank and being like, okay, it's obvious a lot of things about our economic system don't work, how might we reinvent that? You know, like, those things weren't happening in the, in the rooms that I was in, you know? It was much more like, this is the way things go, let's teach you how it's done, and then you go out there and... You go get a piece of that. You, and yeah. And, and you get your little thing yes. and, and smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. If you don't, you're so right. You're so right. You get your little piece of it and smooth sailing if you're good and you don't ask too many questions and you, you, you know, you toe the line. But, See, but you were asking too many questions <laughs> your whole life. From the beginning, yes. Yeah, I wonder if your mom, like part of her was just like, I knew this was going to happen. I think she must have on some level, right? Yeah. I mean... You've got a kind of strange kid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly your kid becomes quite conformist. Some part of you has got to be like, I know what's really going on yeah. in there, you know. And you were incubating. Yeah, <laughs> for a long ass time. So tell me about coming out to Los Angeles and sort of entering the opposite of the world you were in because mm -hmm. after that documentary experience, from what I've read, you came out and started auditioning and, yeah. and sort of did the 
the move to LA and, and be an dance. actress thing. Yeah. And what I was curious about with that was um, your expectations versus the reality of the business. Like, again, that childlike imagination and what things could be like, and then sort of coming face to face with how it was. Yeah, I think. I guess because before any of us come out to LA, we are all first consumers of story. So we think we know what it's gonna be. Like I think when I first came out, I was like, I love Thelma and Louise. I love the first alien. I'll just do things like that, you know? Right. Fun, risky, amazing things. Strong female protagonists, you know? Yeah. And then you get out here and you're like, oh, those were like, serious aberrations from the norm. Like so serious that like, we don't even see, I don't even know what you could compare it to now that has bettered that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not like, it's not like there's a streak of those films and there are so many wildly talented actors looking for parts. So the the, uh, supply and demand is off. Right. So that I was able to diagnose right away. I was like, this is a fundamental supply and demand problem. There are a lot of people looking to do great work and not so much great work. And I remember going to audition for something. I didn't have an agent, didn't have a manager, didn't know anyone in Los Angeles, had like a kind of funky headshot, you know, (laughs) like had nothing. You're holding a paintbrush and like in overalls. (laughs) And the funky headshot at least the, uh, there's a funky headshot. There was nothing on the back of it. So it's always right, like you're handing no resume. the headshot and you're like, don't turn that around. Because all it is is skills, you know? That's right. Horseback riding, yoga, tennis. But there's no, I mean, I hadn't even done a commercial, so there was nothing to, so the only thing I could go up for were things that I could find um, in backstage, you know, you page through it and find a listing, like here's an open call for a horror film, you know, somewhere in the valley and you go and, I only needed to go f- through a few of those before I realized, one, you, you often weren't given the script to audition. So the, I- the implication is that you're so desperate for the part that you don't even care how you're using your voice, your body, your mind inside a narrative, just so long as you're in the narrative. You don't care if the moral of that narrative is like deep misogyny to women. You don't care if it, you're just trying to get the part, you know? and. At some point in one of those lines, I was standing there and looking at us, this group of women, all desperate for this role, a bad role in a bad thing, you know, in skirts, hair blown out, a lot of makeup on, standing in the hot sun, waiting to come in and do these, like, two lines that are like, oh, no, don't, no, no, help, stop, you know, and it's like, what... What am I, what the fuck am I doing here? This is crazy. For all of us, this is crazy. And so at that point, I was like, okay, <laughs> either I've got to leave and find a new thing, or I have to figure out how to become a storyteller. If Were I you come- more afraid that the, it was funneling you towards typecasting, or were you more afraid that you would lose a little part of yourself that you wouldn't the get ladder, back? The latter, the latter. I it think was. it's like, how many moral compromises can you make before you start to chip away at the thing in you that is even worth giving, you know? Like, I I guess there was this narrative in town that it was like a, you come here, you wade through a certain swamp, you know, in order to get to a place where they will let you start to be in rooms to compete, to play, you know, more well-rounded roles, but still usually the girlfriend, the wife, 
you know, the daughter, you, your role in the narrative is to be looked at or to, like, service a certain, like, movement of plot towards something for the male hero to do. And, and you just hope you get to the swamp where you get looked at and a few people get chosen out of the swamp to go and do those things. Do those things. Right. And I was thinking, like, well, wading through the swamp sucks. And then I think sort of what's on the other side is largely not that great either, unless you're in the rare position of, you know, you're one of the most well-respected well known actresses in the world and you can really just pick and choose, you know. But that's next to impossible and there, there are still not enough roles. for. Right. So I think for me, I was suddenly like, wait, okay, I think if I want to go about acting, what I, I really have to go about is writing. Hey folks, let's take a short break from the conversation so I can tell you about our sponsor, Calm.com. You know, stress is a worldwide epidemic. We're working longer hours, we're inundated with the constant news cycle, and we're more connected than ever before. Stress is a part of life, but it can easily affect our overall well-being. I know in my personal experience, running my own business, having kids, trying to manage screen time, homework, driving the kids to their various events, and trying to be creative and run my business, it can sometimes get overwhelming. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I find myself finally in bed, the time that should be the most peaceful, and my brain is racing and thinking about all the things I either didn't do today or that I have to do tomorrow. And you know, if worry is affecting your days and nights, it's probably also affecting your overall health. So that's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More than 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. So head to calm.com and use the promo code OFF and you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. There are also sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax. Head to the magical lavender fields of Southern France with Stephen Fry or explore the moonlit jungles of Africa with Leona Lewis. They even have soothing music and more. It's a great way to end your day and a great way to relax at any time of the day. So I urge you to check out Calm.com. So right now, off-camera listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at Calm.com slash off. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash off. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at Calm.com slash off. Get Calm and stop stressing. Now back to the show. When you were at the height of that sort of, you know, struggle. dismay and struggle, <laughs> yeah, dismay. was there calls home to your mom at that point? Yes. And she's saying, how's it going out there? She kept saying, get a job, get a job. <laughs> what are you doing? Go work at a studio. Go work at one of the agencies. Start in the mailroom. Like, go begin. Structure. Structure. But I, I really understand that because for my parents' generation, the corporation as an entity had been very good to them. Right. You know, I think for my generation, there was a lot more distrust at that point. You know, um, and also I just I kept thinking like, well, I'm out here to try something. Like I have to just do it. And so, for a period, it was like there were a lot less calls home. And I was just like, okay, 
I have to just give myself permission to try this thing. I don't have a backup plan. So the right calls now, home weren't, weren't motivating you. No, no. So right now it's like it's this or nothing. So I'm going to just spend all my time in the library downtown reading scripts, reading screenwriting books, like trying to understand what is it, the architecture of a story? Like how do you build the narrative? What are, what are the tropes? Why are they there? And then, my God, how can we manipulate some of the things inside this to tell better narratives for women um, because I think we have a hard time seeing women clearly. And I think we have such a hard time seeing women clearly because they're not very well represented in this, most of the stories we consume still even. Because historically, most screenwriting was done by men. Yeah, yeah. Which, so is, which is natural and logical that we don't understand women anyway. How are we going to write them? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it's to know fault that that's where we are you know it's a well it would be funny i mean if you could flip the narrative and by some weird you know happenstance women became screenwriters back in the 20s right can you imagine how the men would have been on screen oh my gosh i don't know it would have been so different it, it, it's hard to even it's hard to even fathom i don't know what it would mean like sometimes when i think about I think a lot about the hero's journey, right. which is the basis of most of the narratives we consume. And when you realize that that architecture is in place over the course of hundreds of years of storytelling and that it is written in the male point of view, then you have to start to ask yourself as a woman, okay, what is our structure or our architecture? I really don't know. Like, are there deep myths for us to draw on or do we have to kind of invent, like, out of the box, what what those structures might look like, um, rather than just taking the hero's journey and being like, okay, now we're taking out the male hero and we're putting in a female. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, because you, you have a daughter, so you know that your daughter is, in some ways, her strength is fundamentally different from a male strength. You know, like that. You're right. And as you're saying this, I'm realizing the monumental task of not only not finding fulfillment in, in the thing you thought you wanted to go do, which was act, and then realizing you have to learn how to write to find parts that are going to be good enough, and then realizing, oh, I have to solve this whole problem <laughs> about how women are represented in story to even write something that I'm going to want to be. I mean, I guess it could have been the most wildly inspiring thing, or it could have seemed like just an insurmountable task. Yeah. So when you were sitting down and trying to learn screenwriting, were you aware of what you were biting off? Or do you think it was no. sort of the naivety of like, well, I'll just have to go write the thing I want to be in? No, I think I thought at first, like, this should be relatively simple. Like, I like writing short stories. I like, you know, I, I didn't know how hard screenwriting was. How did you do it? Did you read good scripts and then try to reverse engineer how they were done? Or did Sometimes, you read yeah. books on how to write screenplays? My favorite was Silence of the Lambs, the screenplay for Silence of the Lambs. I read dozens of times because it was so well crafted and it had a female protagonist and it didn't not acknowledge her femaleness which I thought was interesting like it didn't it wasn't like this is a common thing in Hollywood screenwriting which is you write a narrative you write it for a man and at the last moment you change the character's name and do a gender swap and then you have a strong female lead you know and that's great because any form of women being on screen is 
progress. But those characters don't often behave in the way women really do, right? You know, they were written for men. Right. And so they're still, they're behaving like men in the narrative, but they're just in the body of a woman. And then it's a very digestible form of female strength because it's the same thing basically in a new package. But like when I, I remember seeing, uh, watching Silence of the Lambs and thinking like they're acknowledging that she's in a female body. Like they acknowledge that she's at the FBI and she's surrounded by men and that they're, that she has different strengths and weaknesses to her male counterparts at the FBI. And that's a part of the narrative. And when she succeeds in the narrative, it feels to me that she's succeeding in an inherently feminine way. And so to me, that was like, wow, that's so rare and so special. How, how do you dig that out more? So I read that a lot. <laughs> I also read a lot of the things that I was, you know, could find around that were being offered to actresses. And I'd be like, okay, you know, like here are all the things that I don't think are working and not so great screenplays. And here are the ones that really work. Did you have to write a lot of bad scripts? Oh my gosh. I mean, Zal and I wrote something together in our early, early days, a, f- a female espionage story. I wonder what it would be like to go read that right now. Now I'm so curious. <laughs> um, but it wasn't a story. A story is like such a particular thing, and it blows my mind that even when we were part two of the writer's room, on the way, way. it would blow my mind that we could find ourselves so far down the road and then be like, wait, but have we really turned the engine of the story? We think it started. But has it actually that moment where the key slips in the ignition and it turns in your heart and your gut and you think to yourself as the viewer, I now have to watch every moment until this comes to its conclusion because some gap or some tear has opened up and until it's resolved, like, I can't get a snack, I can't pee, I can't do anything. Like, I have to know what happens in this story. And so it's amazing to me that no matter how many times you're at bat, making a narrative, you are always in danger of not turning the key properly and, and really turning on an engine that can like take you through the course of a narrative. It's such a That's It's a mysterious thing. thing. And mysterious, I would think yeah. there's no shortcut for that, right? There's, no. There was no way than for you to just start putting pen to paper and, and trying to see what worked and what didn't. So when you started doing that, would you take your finished work to people you trusted to read? I mean, I think in the beginning, we didn't have anyone professional to show it to. So it's not like we had agents or managers and could be like, can you read this and see, is this, is this a screenplay? So it was really just more giving it to friends. And friends were definitely encouraging. I, I think the thing that we ultimately had, when I first moved out here, I, I came out here with Mike Cahill and Zalbot Mangalaj, another friend of ours from school, We all lived together. We were all making stuff. And I think because we had this tribe, we were able to encourage each other through a period that from the outside could only have been described as like apocalyptic insanity. Like, what are these kids doing? Like, they just like really believe that they're gonna become filmmakers. They know nobody in the business. They, you know, I hadn't been to film school. Yeah, I'm just what in kept the, you going? I think it was the fact that we were in a group and we would read each other's work and we would watch like a short film that Mike had made, you know, and we, w- we would all say to each other or, or they would look at an audition tape that I had made and they would be like, yes, keep going. 
Like, yes, you're getting better. Like, you're not there yet, but you're better than you were the day before. And I think for a period of years, I mean, really like five years. So it wasn't this short journey before something hit. Oh, hell no, no. It always blows my mind the way young, I sometimes talk to young people about this, and they want it to be so immediate. You know, they want their first script to be amazing. They want to, they want it to all work from the beginning. And some people maybe do have those lucky breaks, but in my experience, there's like a whole lot of hours and practice, the same way that like if you were, none of us would assume that we could learn computer code overnight. But for some reason, because we all consume stories, we assume we're experts at making them. We think we should just be able to be like, here it is, you know, rather than understanding that it's it's a craft and you got to like study it, figure it out, try it, you know, have mentorship in it. Well, and to bring this conversation all back around, I think what a hallmark of your work is that there can be intensely human moments inside very big concepts. And so mm. it keeps you rooted in the concept. And, and I, I think that that is no small task to figure out how to do that and have a voice. And it's amazing to me that you're still relatively young for for how high of a, or how steep of a mountain you've climbed. Because I think now in, in part two of the OA, you have sort of the ultimate thing that a creative person wants and is terrified of, which is the blank page. Yeah. It seems like you have the ability to now, based on the structure of this story, to kind of go wherever you want. <laughs> and because your rules, they're permeable and, and malleable and, and it seems like you can do pretty much anything you dream up at this point. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking as you were saying it that maybe in large part our willingness to take risks inside the OA is that Zal and I as co-creators have each other. So before anything ever hits the world, it, it, it incubates there. It's like we tell each other the story. We say, ah, da, 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 and then what if this happens? And then this and this. And you can tell in your writing partner's eyes, like, are they leaning in? Are they breathless? Do they forget about their phone? Like, and they're there, and how long can you hold them there for? And I think having that initial testing ground, it like allows us to have faith in concepts because the other person does. So so we we build this thing between us, like a sort of garden we're tending to, you know? and. I think we have pretty unfettered imaginations on our own, but I think this gets back to the world as a force, kind of shaving off your rough edges a little bit and being like, oh, could you, we love what you're doing, but could you just do a little more like this? Could it just be a little bit this, you know, like, and you can get sort of boxed in, but I think we've been fortunate that having that partnership inside telling the story, we keep just encouraging each other to leave the box, you know? Yeah, that's, as an artist, isn't that what we're all looking for is somebody that says, hey, your crazy idea isn't that crazy. Yeah. Maybe those last 10 people said you were crazy, but I want to listen. Yes, yes, and, yes. And I, it makes me wonder if you hadn't have found partners like that, if you could have yeah. sustained the growth and the, you know, the steps that you needed to get to this point. I don't think so. Yeah. I really think, you know, speaking of myths, deep myths, I think one of the myths that our culture functions on is the idea of the lone creative genius. 
you know, we love that narrative. And we love it, right. especially when they come fully formed, you know, like right out of the womb, genius from the beginning, never had to practice because it just comes right out of them, you know? And well, how often have we seen that war room scene where someone has photographs and maps and threads and, and it's, they go into their own little thing and yeah. they figure it all out without yes. any... Without Help. any, yeah, and any back and forth. Or yeah, but it's so strange to me because some of the most creative people I know are people who either are working inside a collaboration or they have people that they trust very deeply that they are, how about this idea? What about that? What if I frame it this way? Like, and there's, a, there's something that can happen between people that is quite magical. And I think because we're so obsessed with the individual, that it's it's harder for us to be to talk about and imagine um, collective creativity, you know. But I wonder if that's the male skewed um, hero's journey story, which oh, is those usually are the loners that go and either save the town or right. figure out the code for the nuclear yes, submarine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is; it's a solitary pursuit that yeah. is very heroic and does not share the credit and and. Maybe that is a male viewpoint. Yeah, or, or maybe it's just some a story we've been trapped in for a while that we're now finding to be a little outdated, but it hasn't been in our narratives traditionally. And I think that that's something, I mean, I think in, in our own way inside the OA, we try to, we're trying to dig that out. Like, yeah. can you tell a compelling story that champions what people can do together? as much as we've championed what, pe- what someone can achieve on their own, which is, of course, great, you know? Well, it's testament to the success of the show and, and the way that you create it and the way you guys tell each other stories. And, and I would also think that it, it would mitigate a lot of the self-criticism that comes along from the, the myth or the practice of the solitary writer that goes in a room and has, right. to, has to sort of face their own critical voice. And I think also it was, fr- it was the friendships, like profound friendships, uh, and you ha- getting the encouragement from your creative partners, just being like, as you said earlier, you pitch some weird idea, and instead of the person crossing their arms and sitting back in their chair and being like, you're sick, bro, you know, like, <laughs> instead just being like, that's interesting, tell me more about that, like, drawing each other out right. instead of shutting each other down. Which, well, yeah. I mean, the power of your friends and, and you to them has created, you know, a really interesting career. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm beyond impressed with you. Oh, that's so and I'm hooked on your show. And, <laughs> and, I'm and so curious I, what you're going to think at the ending of part two. I'm like, I'm you're going to have to tell me. When, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Sam. Hey folks, that's our show. I just love talking to Brit, and I highly recommend you go check out The OA on Netflix right now. There are two seasons sitting there waiting for you, and I guarantee it will twist your mind into knots as it entertains you. It's a phenomenal piece of work by a truly phenomenal woman, and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you did enjoy our conversation, there is so much more waiting for you at the off-camera website. We've made over 185 episodes at this point, and they're all archived there for your pleasure. And I know you're listening to my voice right now, but you can also see off-camera. We are on DirecTV's audience network every Monday and Wednesday night, 
plus lots of other times if you check your local listings. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also see our show through our television subscription, which you can get at offcamera.com. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever done to watch on any device as many times as you want, all in glorious black and white high definition. It's a great way to dive deeper into the show and see the conversations that you've been hearing. I also really appreciate you listening to this show. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, take a minute, go to Apple, subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode showing up in your feed. While you're there, take a minute and leave us a review and a rating. That helps more people find our show. And ultimately, the more people that find our show means the longer that I can keep doing it. So it's a win-win. Also, if you're loving the show, please don't keep it to yourself. Go on social media and tell your friends about it. Be an advocate for Off Camera. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Off Camera Show. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Jones and on Instagram at Sam Jones Pictures. So shout it to the world. Let people know why you love this show and what you love about it. And hopefully we can get even more people involved. Also, you can send me an email. I love giving bad advice hearing about your careers, and getting guest suggestions. I'm Sam at offcamera.com. So tell your friends, tell me, tell the world, and let's keep doing off-camera for as long as we can. I want to thank everyone that works on this show. I know I say this every week, but truly we wouldn't have a show without the efforts of the people that are here every day in the trenches with us. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, they all work their butt off. So when you see them on the streets... Give them a hug, give them a kiss, keep it clean, but show your appreciation for these fine people. And most importantly, thank you for tuning in each week and making this show possible. One of the most amazing things about doing this show is that it broadcasts all over the world and I get letters from people in places I would never expect. And it's so exciting to find out that there's an actor in New Zealand that listens to the show and finds some wisdom from it. Or there's a musician in Budapest that got some piece of advice from an episode and incorporated that into their careers. That's exciting for me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get to do it. And most importantly, be sure to join me next time when I sit down with our youngest guest ever, actress Joey King. I don't want to sound like I'm tuning my own horn here, but I do think that I have a lot of empathy. Even if I can't really relate to a situation my character's been through, to try and put myself in their shoes for a second, I can feel that. I feel it really deeply. There have been countless times where all of a sudden I hear someone say, cut. And I'm like, what? And it's always so funny, too, when I'm, like, in the middle of, like, really just crying. Like, someone says, cut, and you're like, Oh my God, I'm still crying. Like, I always say, and I really do mean it, I think my personal happiest moments as a person are between action and cut. Because I don't think about anything. Whether I turned off the stove or took the dog pee or like whatever, like I'm not thinking about any of it. I'm just thinking about what I'm doing and it's like such a freeing moment. Joey's been acting since age four and is one of the most mature and accomplished 19-year-olds I have ever met. She also nearly broke Instagram after her film The Kissing Booth came out on Netflix, growing her following from the tens of thousands to an astonishing nine million in a few months. And with that kind of influence, things change. Not only is she inundated with offers and opportunity, she can also DM large corporations and change policy at Kentucky Fried Chicken. By the way, that story is worth tuning in for alone. With her newest project, Hulu's The Act, Joey stars alongside Patricia Arquette, 
in her most challenging, dramatic, and harrowing role of her life and proves why she deserves every opportunity that is coming her way. See you next time, off camera.